friends and comrades, I hope you and yours continue to be healthy and safe. For your Highlands Bunker this week, we have a podcast in two parts. I'm not sure how we'll actually release these, whether at once or over the course of a weekend. Uh, Speaking of which, big thanks to Carl for producing all of these remotely and for dealing with my continual technical fuck-ups. Also want to thank synth-pop legend and DC Zone 2D Cat for our original beats. Uh, And last but not least, uh, Greg and Two Stones, thank you. Um, I know that those good folks, like one of our episode guests, are struggling to maintain a cool local small business uh, and keep it alive, keep the dream alive. Um, So solidarity with them. Uh, Two Stones, whatever they don't drink, they can. About three weeks ago, my friend, uh, the economist Andrew Cassie, called me up. He wanted to talk 15 or 20 minutes about the CARES Act. Uh, So we recorded it, and we wound up speaking for about an hour. That will be part one. Andrew was able to explain the CARES Act and the Payment Protection Plan as a diligent uh, educator. But I still found the legislation both enormously lopsided in the favor of financial elites and capital interests, as well as wholly insufficient in mitigating the disaster we're dealing with. In part two, I reached out to my friend Alex Ciani. Alex and his wife Gretchen own and operate Delacour Patisserie in 40 Acres, as well as another cafe and a small wholesale bakery. Uh, Alex explains how the terms and restrictions of PPP and the general one-size-fits-most framework were unworkable for his business, Uh, the risk to small niche family businesses, artisanal businesses, neighborhood businesses is quite grave indeed. Folks, at some point, we're going to need to venture back out in a measured, careful manner. This is going to require a level of solidarity and community spirit that, very frankly, I am unconvinced we can summon. Worse is this frigid fact. The world we walk back into will not be the same. The way we will interact with each other will not be, quote, normal, unquote. Many of the people you know and many of the places you go will be broken and bankrupt. We need to start having tough conversations. Thankfully, dear listeners, I know you are all up to the task. So enjoy this double episode. uh, And remember, you can support our work by becoming a reoccurring patron at patreon.com slash the Highlands Bunker. So, uh, hello everybody. Uh, this is Rob coming from the Highlands Bunker. It's another uh, another virtual situation. We're still uh, we're still quarantining, self isolating, and dealing with our personal plague. Um, Carl is producing remotely, and joining me is my friend uh, and uh, previous guest, uh, economist Andrew Cassie. Hello, everybody. I hope you're all well. Well, this whole thing started out, uh, I guess, a couple of days ago. It might, I guess it was maybe when the CARES Act was either had been passed. It might have been a couple of days after it was passed. Uh, I got a, a text from you that just said, 
I have some thoughts about fiscal and monetary policy. Can I get 15 minutes? And I said, absolutely, you can. Um, so, yeah, what I mean, I know sort of what feeling I have about what's going on with um, the unemployment number, what's going on sort of with the markets, quote unquote, uh, and how that's either either is or is not going to ameliorate sort of the problems that we're having. Yeah, so, so let's let's start let, with with the the unemployment data you mentioned. Uh, the official unemployment rate was announced the first week in April, and it was four point four percent, up from three point five percent in March. But yet, you know, we've seen twenty two million initial unemployment insurance claims, which is roughly about fourteen fifteen percent of the hundred sixty five million worker labor force. So how can that both be true? Um, so I, th I think I'll take a minute just to explain these two different types of data and, and how those seemingly very disparate numbers can coincide. Uh, the initial unemployment insurance claim data is weekly data released by the Department of Labor, and it's collected by each state government telling the U.S. Department of Labor how many times they were first contacted by someone seeking unemployment insurance or unemployment benefits. So that's done weekly and it's people who have contacted the state and then the state telling the feds how many, how many people that is. Um, so as I mentioned, in March, March 7th, it was 211,000 was the number. March 14th, 282,000. That's about the level of a, um, um, a low unemployment scenario. Okay. The highest it had ever been was in 1982, and it was 700,000 in a week, slightly, slightly uh, less than 700,000. Yeah, these are weekly increases. They're weekly first-timers contacting a state unemployment office at seeking benefits. Okay, got it. Okay. Then March 21st comes 3.3 million. March 28th, 6.8 million. And each one's new, so it's additional. And it seems really unlikely that anyone's sort of finding work when uh, they can't leave their house. Okay, so that's the weekly claims data that's been getting a lot of news because it's many times higher than we've seen in the past. Unemployment rate is released by the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the official number, and it's done monthly. And it's done by survey. So these, and these weekly claims is completely different from how unemployment rate is officially collected. Bureau of Labor Statistics does a survey of households and a survey of businesses. And that survey asks people like, like Rob Vanilla, uh, have you been paid during the pay period that covers the 12th day of the month? Okay. So if you say yes, you're going to be employed. If you say no, they'll ask you a couple different things. They might ask you something like, well, uh, are you retired? Are you a student? Something that would take you out of the labor force. But another thing they could ask you is, well, are you employed, but you did not get paid? 
That might be a situation if you have, say, non-paid vacation or non-paid sick leave. Another thing they might ask is, well, if you're not paid, but you're furloughed, it's not a question. The BLS will classify if you have not been paid, but you're furloughed as unemployed. So this, so, so a couple of things here is one, because the survey is done that covers the 12th day of the month, the March number of 4.4% unemployment is reflecting with what the survey looked like in the first two weeks of March, not the last two weeks of March when the weekly claims were getting into the millions. It won't be till the end of the first week of May that we'll get something that covers April 12th, which is now. What's the ramifications of this discrepancy? I mean, obviously, because we get weekly numbers that are just first-time hits to the state on unemployment. Uh, I mean, obviously, there's a relationship between these two things over time that you can probably look at and say, I, I don't know if the, if the situation and the context blows it up, but how close are these numbers when they track with – if they're going to track the, through the month of April and every week we're going to get a number from the state labor – departments of labor. So historically, so, they so would, there, well. would, there, would there be a way to predict that this number from the Bureau of Labor Statistics is going to be around X because of the way that the other numbers are tracking? Yeah. So uh, lots of lots of forecasting economists are trying to do that right now. Every big corporation is trying to do that to forecast um, to forecast the unemployment rate and how bad the economy will be. Historically. Weekly claims and unemployment rate have tracked pretty well because weekly claims hasn't changed that much week to week. Even during the Great Recession of 2008, um, you know, that was sort of slow moving in a way. So the weekly claims weren't changing that much week to week. And actually all the recessions going back for as long as we've tracked recessions, have been relative to this slow moving. So it's a completely new thing for economic forecasters to try to figure out how much the employment rate will be on a one month lag with the weekly claims changing so fast. Yeah, I mean, just to add context, I mean, we've talked about it before. Like, I was laid off from Wells Fargo in 2009 10. But the initial sort of market implosion and subsequent events were a year or 18 months ahead. Yeah, that recession started fourth quarter 2007. The layman collapse was like September 2008. Yeah, so and I, and I think that uh, the group of folks that I lost my job with at Wells Fargo were in 2009. So again, that sort of shows you extrapolates out over a longer period of time. Here we have, I mean, going up to 6 million plus and then, or excuse me, going to 3 million and then, and then doubling the yes. next week. Yep. So 3.3 uh, million, 6.9 million, 6.6 million, and then just uh, yesterday, 5.2 million. So that's 22 million people seeking uh, unemployment benefits in the last, new people, not people asking again and again, new people in the last four weeks. That'll be roughly 
something like a 16.5% unemployment rate when the, the May report is released the first week in May. And if we see any kind of deviation from that sort of range or that target, I mean, would we, do you expect that it's, this is such a sort of out of context situation that it could be any different than that? Or do you have a pretty good, I mean, you should have that many people, still that many people. It yeah. doesn't sort of, yeah, it's still the same. You're still working off of the basic uh, number of, you know, whatever the labor force is X. I'm very confident it'll be over 10%, which is the highest it got during the 2008 recession. The, the impact to people's day-to-day lives is going to be fairly significant. Yeah, I mean, something I haven't seen that I'd be curious to see is how many of the, of the people uh, who've been, an all, I'll call it furloughed, so they're not being paid, but maybe they still are retaining benefits. I'd like to know how many people there are in that group. Yeah, that would be a tough one because you're only going to get that through the Bureau of Labor Statistics through survey. That's right. That, that doesn't seem really, I don't know. I mean, I guess it's, I mean, I'm guessing the no, model. I mean, that's going to be a number that we're going to figure out like years from now, not right. in the next month. Yeah. Actually, somebody was here. Uh, uh, we were outside having stoop beers. That's our new thing as we stand on the sidewalk and have beers all that's like. That's a new thing? Meters. That seems like an old time Wilmington thing. <laughs> Well, I guess the distance between us is, is different <laughs> since we're all spread out like across the, the block. distance is everyone's on their own stoop instead of all meeting at one stoop. Yeah, I set up some chairs like, you know where my stoop is. And then at the curb, I set up two chairs and you can sit out there across the sidewalk. That's it. So w- without making any more sort of commentary on, you know, uh, social, cultural impact or even political impact, let's move into the politics a little bit and talk about the CARES Act. I know yep. when we first talked, and I think we did like a, we're in the 60s now. We've done almost 70 episodes with bonuses. And I believe you were on a single digit episode. Yeah, seven or eight, six, seven or eight. Yeah, that's, that's incredible. But we did, again, try to talk about uh, modern monetary theory a little bit. Um, and I think what, at least from a monetary policy, from how this is going down from a technical end, that's kind of what's happening already. Um, but can you, you want to explain sort of what kind of packages together, what it does, how much it is? and Yeah, let me give a, a summary of, of the parts that I think matter for most listeners. Um, so I'll first list out the kind of parts and then get into the details of each one. So the first one's direct payments. The second one is Uh, expanded unemployment benefits. The third one is the payroll protection program, the small business administration loans to small business owners, and then uh, what the Federal Reserve is doing. So how's that sound? Does that sound all right? Was that, that was four, right? That was four. Direct payments, unemployment insurance, SBA, and then the Fed. Yep. Yep, got it. Yeah, so uh, the first part, direct payments, $1,200 per, per person plus $500 uh, per child max. Um, really, all I want to say about that is those checks, and by checks, I'm going to mean checks and direct deposit. So don't get me caught up on a technical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dis- I mean, the disbursement. about that? Those disbursements. Disbursements. Uh, they just started on Tuesday or Wednesday, I believe, at a rate of $2 million per day. 
which means it could take 50 or so days for everyone to, to get theirs. Now, and I would like to just interject one other thing as a piece of, uh, it's just a detail that it is uh, means tested. So the amount that you get is based on, you know, uh, your income from either last year's returns or two years ago, if you haven't filed. That's right. And also even just, I believe even just your dependent children is, is mean tested in some fashion as well. So people could wind up getting 600 hours, 400 oh, yeah, hours, yeah. whatever, yeah. whatever. So that's, yep, yep, yep. Or nothing, or, 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 or nothing. So the numbers I gave were the, were the maximum. Right. And so I think that the, the point of this was to be very fast. I don't know if 50 days from today is very fast, but it was to be very fast and very direct. The downside of it um, is because, as you said, they're using like your tax returns to figure out who you are from a year or two ago. Like dead people are getting money and like people who don't live in the U.S. anymore and other things. So since they know that's a problem and they wanted speed, let's move on to the second. I, I, I ordered my four points sort of in terms of speed. So the second thing is the expansion of unemployment benefits. Um, so I think the idea was let's mail people checks right away. While they're getting their checks, they can apply for unemployment benefit expansion. And then while that's getting sorted out, we can get small businesses loans to rehire people and that'll be supported by the Fed. So that's how I, I ordered those. So un unemployment benefits. The, the median U.S. worker makes four, $949 a week. So that means of all workers, uh, half make up to $949 a week, and the other half make at least $949 a week. Now, this differs by sex. It differs by, by demographic, by, by race. But if you lump all workers together, the median weekly Income pre-tax income is 949. Uh, the reason I mention that is the median pre-crisis, the median um, state benefit payout was 385 per week. So that's roughly 40 percent. And the reason I mention that is I believe this part of the program was designed so that the median worker, if unemployed, would be made whole for 16 weeks. So this number about the expansion of benefits is going to be the state amount plus 600 on top of that roughly matches the median worker's uh, income per week. Yeah, so it's 384 and... An additional six would yeah, be. Yeah, so 985 versus 949. Yeah. Well, here's the, so I, here's my two questions. Number one is, you can see the math. That's fine. Um, you can sort of, rev in, in a very logical way, sort of engineer where they came up with the figure. I think that sounds as good of an explanation as I've ever heard. Um, Thank you. <laughs> I didn't yeah. read that anywhere. I came up with that myself. Nice, nice job. Look at you. You're a regular academic. <laughs> um, 
I guess what the 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 issue, the biggest issue I have is that's twofold actually. So it's two. Number one is it treats every sort of situation just like a math problem, which is never going to be good. The second thing is it it and you sort of alluded to this when you were talking about the checks going out. They can only process you know two million checks a week or whatever yeah. it is, and so there so. The other part of that is that, and we just talked to Saran Cade about what the Department of Labor is doing, trying to get processed through. I mean, they've, they've gotten more. Uh, he, he gave me the figures the other night, and we haven't, I don't know if Carl's gone back and listened to him, but they were astronomical. It was like their biggest, the biggest weekly increase might have been hundreds. Yep. You know, and now it's thousands. Did he happen to mention how many workers by pre-crisis they had to do this? Uh, he, I don't know if he gave numbers, but he did say that almost everybody's still sort of pitching it and trying to get through it even. Uh, yeah, but you I don't, could imagine a state like Delaware is like under five people who that was their job like in February to do this. And now like every, every person in government is doing it. Yeah. And so I guess that's, that's a, an example of the fact that we simply don't have the, the infrastructure or the mechanisms to deliver the help in an efficient way. We can come up with a number and sort of a machine to be like, well, this plus this plus that will get you the middle, the, you know, the median of, of, you know, weekly wages. Yes. Yeah, so, but so that's but exactly we don't, right. it, you said the same thing about the, uh, you know, sort of about the administration of just, you know, from your tax records, you might not live here. You might have been deceased. The, all of the mechanisms of the state are completely, it seems to me, unequipped to even deliver this sort of paltry, that's exactly right. And I, I should have explained this a little better at the beginning. The, the, the steps of the CARES Act are, I think, speed and then trying to get more finesse and more nuance. And the three and four things I described, none of them are going to be that tailored. Because you could imagine if you weren't treating people as a number and actually had to consider every case and there's 165 million people in the U.S. labor force, that'll take years. Yeah. So let's, let's move on to the uh, – well, so the next one's SBA. Well, well – well, um, or, or do you have something on the unemployment? I, I, yeah, I have, I have something on the, on the unemployment that I think um, other sources in the media will talk about a lot. If you are someone who is well below the medium – wage, uh, weekly wage earner. Uh, you can make more on these benefits than, than by working. And I'm sure there are many um, media sources and media commentators who are really going to have conniptions about this idea of, of people receiving unemployment benefits maybe sizably larger than their weekly wage. I think really the way to think about it is not, um, oh, freeloaders are, are making more without working than they are, but it's worth more to the economy for people to stay home than it is for them to do uh, uh, a, jo a, a, low, a low wage job. Yeah, and so I'll take it one step further, just a bit of commentary. The, the value that that person is adding to the economy is vastly more 
than the person than they're being paid in wages. So the difference is going somewhere under normal circumstances. And that is probably how, or one of the mechanisms why we have such incredible income disparity. Uh, just that's commentary. No, that's fine. But let's, 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 uh, let's suppose you're wrong about that. Just, just for the sake of argument. In what, in what way? Uh, that that uh, a wage earner is getting exactly their contribution to the economy. But just, just bear with me. Just suppose okay. that. You're pushing my buttons now. Yeah. It's still a good idea to pay those types of workers more to not go to work because if each person with the uh, virus can affect 2.3, 2.4 other, other workers, then, um, yeah, pay, pay people the median income. And uh, Yes. So it, it, uh, what I would say is, yes, there is a logical rationale for incenting people not to go out. From, yep. a, from a from a from a health standpoint, however, if that were the case, they wouldn't have picked a number so low as the median to try to get to th through some back ass kind of calculation. If you wanted to incent people to stay home, you pay everyone. You pay you yeah. You'd incent people to stay home. This is like a, a reverse engineered. Well, there is there are people below the median who are now getting a little bit more, and we can call that an incentive to stay home. But really, that's just I mean, this, is, this is my perspective on this, because I think there's going to be a lot of uh, commentary from other sources, like aghast about the uh, disincentive of this. And I'm trying to make the argument, even if I acknowledge their claims about the value of low wage earners uh, contribution to the economy, they're still wrong. Let's try to let's let's imagine the next step of tailoring money to people who need it. First, you gave direct benefits. Then you do un unemployment insurance that's going to um, favor heavily low wage low wage earners. Um, the next thing you would actually do is try to pay people exactly what they were making before. Well, the government doesn't know how much everyone was making before, even through your once a year taxes. And even if they did, they have no mechanism for getting that there. Right, we've already seen that processing these direct deposits and checks can take 50 days for just one, a one-time payment. So the idea was, well, let's have businesses continue to pay people with money coming from the government. Well, how do you administer? It's not even that if you can't send the money directly to the workers, it's not really that much easier to send the money directly to small business owners. So the law is designed to use the exist, existing financial system, banks, to be the intermediary. So I just want to point out, and uh, uh, I will add emphasis to this, the law is established to use banks as an intermediary for a reason. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, for, for that reason. They're trying to expand it a little more to some non-bank financial institutions. Uh, you, Rob, I'm sure already can anticipate one of the problems of this. It's supposed to be a little more nuanced. But if you're a small business owner who didn't participate in the formal banking system, you're going to be out of luck. Yeah. And, and the other, I mean, uh, the, the numbers I've seen coming in, on the small business stuff have been like atrocious. 
the money's not – I mean, the, I, I think – I'm not even sure if they're still doing the program, but a lot no, of it – No, it's gone. Money's gone. Yeah, the money's gone. Uh, Ruth, Ruth's Chris Steakhouse, uh, you know, got two of the maximum $20 million loans, but I think only like 20% of small businesses got anything. Or yeah, so let me discuss some of the like details. That. Some of the details. So this was supposed to be a program for uh, businesses with fewer than 500 employees only. Um, and it's a loan that the biggest loan should be 10 million, but your loan amount is supposed to be two months of your wages plus 25% to cover your lease. And that's it. Um, if you use the loan to pay workers and your lease, it's a grant. You don't have to repay it. If you use it for something else, you have to repay it um, at pretty generous interest rates. However, it's the issuing bank that's taking on the risk of determining how many employees you have and, and figuring out the size of the loan. So, Rob, you have your business. You go and say, I have a small business owner. I want the maximum $10 million. Uh, the bank needs to say, well, show me evidence of your, your past wage stubs. And if it's not 10 million, they need to say no. If they say yes, and it's not true, the bank is on, on the hook for that because the government will only reimburse the wage amount and, and the lease amount. So since there is risk to the bank, um, banks have started with their own customers because they're the ones who they already know maybe their wage bills. It's a great system. Okay. So there's been a lot of criticism of banks about how difficult it is to uh, get these loans. Um, but in part is the banks have to, fi have to figure out uh, how much the wage bill is for these small businesses. And, and they're going to start with their own customers. Now, let me add one other thing. Who does this really help? It really helps small businesses that have big wage bills as a share of overall expenses. Who does it not help? Like mom and pop stores where there's maybe only one or two salaries, but a lot of uh, expenses from products, say. Yeah, because I can think of a few people that I know are uh, struggling a little bit more who are in the situation you said. You know, it's mom and pop three people but it's more like product rent i mean i guess it would cover the rent but still yep. that's that's not the that's not the lion's share of the of the expense yeah so so the types of small businesses this is going to help is where there's a lot of sort of um uh lightly paid workers like restaurants um i don't know nail salons did you just use that. the term lightly paid workers yeah i'll, I'll let that slide well, I guess I'm not going to. Not me. Them. I'm not the one lightly paying them. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> uh, okay. So, um, so, so they ran out. The program ran out of money very quickly. Uh, the average loan amount was about two hundred fifty thousand dollars. It went to one point four million small businesses. There's about thirty million small businesses in the country. So, not very many. I don't know. 30 million seems like a lot to me. 
No, I mean, 30 million small businesses, but it only went out to 1.4. Yeah. There you, there, that. So it didn't, the, 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 it didn't benefit a, a high percentage. And, and the ones that benefited were, were businesses that had a high percentage of uh, payroll costs. Yeah. And so, because so, I actually think it's not um, useful to think of this as, as a grant to a small business. I think it's a way of paying workers that's supposed to be more targeted and nuanced than the direct payments and the unemployment benefits. Yeah, I mean, well, I will say that there have been some other countries in Europe that have done something similar uh, in Scandinavia and where they're going to say, okay, well, we're just going to cover 80% of the wages or yeah, whatever so it is. It's like, you know what I mean? We'll, we'll, we'll come in and fill the gap and they do it more more blatantly but again here because of our uh sort of institutions we we refuse to do that and we have to put this in the hands of private capital to then to then sort out and do to the be- to, to their benefit so i mean for- i don't think this is a sweet deal for banks banks are being asked to do a lot of a lot of to be an intermediary that they don't necessarily want to, to do. Of course, because they don't want to just give a loan that is uh, a grant uh, and, and do processing just to basically just get paid yeah, out. Yeah, it's one, just processing. Really. Just get the paid out one-to-one. It's just processing because the government isn't, doesn't know how much each worker is getting paid for each business. But because they, because they transferred 100% of the risk, what they did was ensure that um, only, only a very narrow set of businesses in a certain set of circumstances would get, the, would get the relief. So, so yeah, I mean, you can say that. It's you absolutely know, correct. I mean, it's going to the workers who work for like sort of the biggest of the small businesses, those yeah. that are, have a lot of workers, those that are most comfortable with the traditional financial system. Yeah, and I guess and 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 and, and so the and Roots Chris is a great example of that. Yeah, yeah, but but again, you would you would also expect that perhaps some of those companies, while they do employ a lot of people, also are more able because of that their their situation to weather a three or six month storm. Yeah, I mean, so, I really can't say. Restaurants is is pretty tough. Um, but well, Ruth, Ruth Chris is a little bit of a bad example just because it's like a high-end sort of corporate yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean – But, my, I mean, so 1.4 million small businesses out of 30 million got it so far. I'm really curious to know, like, what share of labor that represents. If that 1.4 represents, like, 90% of restaurant workers, then you would think this is pretty successful from a worker's perspective. So let's get into the Fed bit. Yeah. Uh, because I don't know what you consider the Fed or, or, or their – my interest, and I can tell you right off the bat, is this sort of $450 billion sort of capitalization that is going to be overseen by like one fucking doofus. Um, and it's going to allow – you know, it's basically 10% capitalization for the lending of then maybe yeah. $4.5 trillion. So, so, so how is that the is that the bit you're talking about this end of it? I I think so. This end of oh, it. So, in some way to alleviate some of the problems with the payroll protection program I just described, um, 
The Fed is basically telling banks, okay, this risk is not on you. We are going to assume the risk. So we are going to buy 95% of all the loans that you make through this program so that of the loan, you only have 5% risk. But the Fed is not, um, I, think, I think legally, and certainly not by tradition, uh, allowed to do that kind of direct action. So the Treasury Department puts in $75 billion to the Fed, and then the Fed can leverage that in, in the way I just described to buy 95% of these payroll protection program loans. This is the uh, payroll protection program facility that the Le uh, Fed has set up uh, this week. This is the week of April 7th or whatever. Yeah, and this will probably come out fairly soon. Um, but yeah, it's good to timestamp it. Now, the Fed has a similar type of program for medium businesses. Uh, that's called the Main Street Lending Facility. Those are loans on the order of like one to 25 million. So bigger than the 10 million max for the uh, payroll protection program. And then they have a Main Street expanded facility, which is like 10 million to 150 million. And it's the same type of thing. Treasury had to give some billions of dollars uh, because the, the Fed cannot take risk, cannot uh, uh, buy risk debt and then uses that in a leverage kind of way to scale up. Yeah, and I guess the only thing I'll say to this, not to get into like a, a real sort of politicized thing, just we wanted to get information out there, but what this really does is indicate that a, a huge portion of this sort of relief effort is simply there to prop up um, our current structure. Absolutely. You know, the, 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 finance, the finance companies and the banks are, are, are always going to be supported and what, when, what they're going to sort of, as you said before, the small business association loans might not have been you know, a, a windfall for the bank, but what it indicates is we're going to rely on the, the, the banks and the financial institutions to administer whatever relief we're going to do. I mean, I think the whole CARES Act is built around the idea of this is a insanely steep spike in bad economic outcomes that's going to be very short. And so if we can just build the bridge over the chasm, we can get right back to the way things were. You buy, I'm you, certainly not prepared right now to talk about what I think of that happening. What, you're not prepared? You're going to tell me that and then you're going to give us a cliffhanger and say you're not prepared to tell yeah, me? Yeah, you're going to have to invite me back. Okay, that's fine. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess the only thing um, I, I would I would mention is is just that. Um, I guess I'll close I'll close by maybe mentioning something and then asking you a question. Because well, before you close, let me say you know, and Rob, you probably know more about this than than I do. There's discussion about increasing restarting the payment protection program loans adding more billions to the 349 that's already gone. Um, I actually don't know what the status is of that. Yeah, well, that, and that's interesting that you brought that up because that was kind of where I was going to sort of leave it and we'll leave it here for now and see where it goes. But from a political standpoint, they're talking about, I think they're referring to it as like phase four because these things sort of rolled out in, in, in yeah. phases. So 
phase four is still being negotiated. And one of the things that I find just, just very rich uh, is the idea that from a healthcare standpoint, now this is a, at the, at the heart of it, it's a public health crisis. That's what's causing these economic sort of uh, reactions. So healthcare is going to be pretty important to try to stem the tide of, of what's happening. And the, the, the Democratic-led U.S. House of Representatives is pitching a plan whereby they will subsidize people to buy into COBRA, the most expensive horseshit sort of corporate uh, you know, insurance around. But that's the solution. The solution is to somehow prop up private enterprise and ensure that they can still, you know, maybe be able to, in a very expensive way, put people on their books. But, uh, and, it, and it follows the, the pattern that we talked about for the four things that have already been done. I think prop up is the right way to think about it. I mean, I don't track the politics as closely as you do, but my sense is the Republicans are saying like, yes, we just need to prop this up. Just give more money into what we're doing now, despite the flaws that I mentioned. And Democrats are saying, well, let's take this opportunity to, to at least make baby steps and institutional adjustment. Like, let's have some things to try to help out the mom and pops more, help out minority business that don't bank in the uh, traditional banking sector as much. Yeah, I mean, but the, again, I don't, uh, our, we, we, there's, there, there needs to be a, a wholesale sort of shift in what we're doing here. Like, are we here to, is our value to being here, um, the 900 and the 950 bucks that we, we make a week median, you know, is that our, is that somebody's value of being here? Is Actually, I'd be lucky to have that value. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's true. But yeah, I mean, it's, it comes down to that. Like how you can, uh, and I think this is good because we got a, we got a very clear sort of explanation of what it is. And now everybody can kind of go out and say, well, what should we be asking for? What would work better? You know, we're relying on inefficient uh, sort of large uh, established structures that are, that are, let's be honest, in place to make a profit for capital and shareholders. And we're saying, you go, we'll give you the money, you decide, and we'll make sure it's right at the minimum like right at the line based on the calculations that we've done, that's how we're going to rescue, you know, the economy and make everybody whole. But we don't have to, um, we can question as, you know, as you laid it out, Andrew, we can question sort of like these decisions are made. Why did you pick these numbers? Why did you do it this way? Um, so anyway, I thanks for uh, coming on and kind of explaining it to us. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Hello, everyone. This is uh, part two of a special Highlands Bunker. I don't know how we're going to be airing them exactly, um, but we spoke to uh, my friend and economist Andrew Cassie uh, about sort of just an overview of the CARES Act and, and PPP, but it was very sort of anodyne or, or you know, it was like a, uh, just a look at it numbers-wise. Um, but really, um, 
you know, when you get down at the, at the level of, of folks with their own business or, 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 you know, just working for a living, um, things are quite different. Um, so I'm going to talk to you today with my friend, Alex Ciani. Uh Alex and his wife, Gretchen, uh, own Delacour Cafe um, in 40 Acres. And they also uh, are operating other, um, other stuff around. We'll talk about that and had other plans to, um, to open up in the neighborhood. We'll talk about that. Um, but the situation is a little different uh, from his perspective. And I will say uh, before we start that, um, you know, there's a few, there's a few sort of running gags uh, on the show. Uh, you know, one of them is my mispronunciations. Uh, and one of them is my, uh, my ineptitude uh, with technology. So Alex and I actually spoke for an hour yesterday, but um, let's just say that I understand more about how recordings from Zoom compile and, uh, and, and create um, auto and video files than I ever cared to know. Um, but the reason I know is because I fucked it up yesterday. <laughs> so Alex, thanks for, um, thanks for coming back and joining us again. It's a pleasure, man. We'll, we'll come back stronger and we'll come back. Uh, come back drunker. Yeah. Um, I actually, you know, we talked on the phone this morning too. And, and I, after, um, you know, after my temper tantrum because of what I did and beating myself up yesterday, um, I did start to think about like some of the, the conversation we had. And, and I'm kind of glad that we're able to circle back because I think we'll, we'll be able to put it in more order and we'll be able to put more detail to it, exactly what sort of the impacts are and why. Um, but before we do that, um, yeah, so you have the cafe, and we talked about um, where you're doing also some you – were, you were doing some wholesale baking uh, for other restaurants as a supplier. Um, yeah, so go through sort of what you had cooking and what you had planned uh, sort of before this all, this all hit us. Yeah, it's kind of hard to even recall what we, what we covered and what we didn't cover yesterday. So yeah. it's a brand-new yeah. recording, man. Cool. My name is Alex I, um, with my wife, I own and operate uh, De La Cour Cafe, tiny little coffee shop in 40 acres, just outside of Trolley Square area. <clears throat> We've been there since October of 2015. We also had recently just opened um, our, our boulangerie, which is in Independence Mall on Route 202 in Wilmington also. And... Um, our bakery is an offsite production facility that that um, uh, produces for both of our cafes and a number of other local restaurants and um, cafes, etc. Some of those are, if you're in the area and you know, they are Harry's, Savoy, um, La Fia, uh, Bardea. We did um, the Country Butcher in Kennett Square. Um, hearth kitchen in Kennett Square, uh, a, num a number of other, you know, uh, local restaurants. Um, so when we when we first opened, we we knew that we wanted to be uh, different. I'm a I'm now a five year restaurant owner, but when when we actually opened up, um, you know, my wife and I had just worked in other restaurants, and we wanted to do uh, things that we saw our previous employers not do or fail to do and the industry in itself, it, it needs a lot of, uh, of, uh, changeovers. And in fact, it's probably important for me to state my bias 
Rob, you probably know me well enough. You know, we, uh, I'm not an, I'm not a money guy. I'm not a numbers guy. Uh, we, we got into our industry because we had a passion for food and, and for beverages, wine. I sold wine prior to, uh, to opening a restaurant and we have a passion for, for food and quality products. And that's what we got into the business for. If we'd gotten into it to uh, make a lot, a lot of money, we probably wouldn't be in this, um, position that we're in now but also not many people go into the restaurant industry to, to make a lot of money um the margins are extremely small so uh my bias is that we we actually attempted in our little tiny company we attempted to pay people a living wage we offered benefits at one point um we paid people uh you know a decent salary and offered them a vacation as well as the health care uh, slowly, those things started to to go away. Um, in our five years, we were a victim of our own success. We we probably expanded a little too quickly. Um, so our independent small location was actually our second attempt at a um, at a second cafe. So a lot of factors played into um, to how we found ourselves even before. Um, March 17th, 2020, we found ourselves pretty much right on the, the cusp. We were always, um, you know, we weren't always in the red. We are, we're still not, um, as a full company, we are not overall profitable. Uh, so when this hit, it, it really, really, uh, highlighted a lot of the, uh, the failures in our, in our business, our tiny little, micro nano restaurant group but then it really also highlighted the um the failures of the entire industry as a whole and then not only that of course what we're seeing in our in our government and in our our uh, everything that that we're seeing now is uh pointing directly to the failures of our current system yeah um we talked about with uh with andrew we talked about just the cares act in in general and you know you can put numbers to something but the fact of the matter is that uh, a lot of these small businesses are very unique um as you said you you kind of you're doing it to sort of uh you know figure out how you can do what you want to do and find little niches and you know it's not some huge operation that has you know certain supply chains and certain you know um redundancies built in you know you have a unique sort of thing to yourself um how many how many uh, employees did you have on i know we talked yesterday saint patrick's day is sort of like the the, the day that it looked like it was going to go down um, the the darkest day of our our business that's for sure yeah. and on that day yeah we we had to um lay off 36 employees total jeez so while there are um while they are eligible for unemployment, uh, you uh, you would not be um, at, at least at, at that time, and I don't know if that's going to change. But so they were eligible, but you were eligible technically for um, the payment protection plan, the PPP. So, can you explain to us um, your experience with it? Um, before we do, I guess I'll just level set everybody. You know. At, as you know, the payment protection plan was there, but it was, uh, the, you know, the government doesn't want to be responsible or accountable for the administration of anything. So they passed it along to the banks. 
Um, but the banks needed to then work with their customers in whatever way they saw fit. Um, and that's why we saw situations like, um, as I said yesterday, Steak Shack and Ruth Chris uh, being um, shamed into giving back the money because, uh, you know, obviously they're, they operate a little differently than, you know, a self-employed small business. Um, but what was your experience with it? What were the, what were the terms and restrictions? And then explain a little bit why you were, why you took the position you took on it, because if those terms could be, could be met, uh, the loan that you would get to sustain um, the business in some fashion uh, would be forgiven. Uh, but the terms because of your situation were not workable. So yeah, if you can explain kind of how you went through that uh, situation and what the impacts were. Yeah, sure. And as a whole, the CARES Act in general, if you've um, gotten into the, to the guts of it, it's, it's a robbery, it's a theft. And, um, you know, I'm going to try and be a little bit better <laughs> about censoring my, myself, but you know, I'm fucking pissed. I'm pissed because I'm a taxpayer and I'm pissed because I'm a small business owner in this country. And what the CARES Act did was didn't contemplate uh, our industry whatsoever or any small businesses for that matter. It just gave trillions of dollars to large corporations. And that, that's a very familiar uh, thing. I think you know a little bit about that from 2008, don't you, Rob? Yeah, I do. Um, and that's, again, that's what we sort of talked about um, yesterday, what people's takeaway from 2008 was. And even, you know, speaking to Andrew a week ago or so, we, the, the system we have is set up to be able to quickly funnel money from the treasury to the largest corporations in, in the country and the richest people in the country, because that's how it's set up. Um, so those things can be capital, those capital markets can be refreshed with the stroke of a key. Um, so that's how we're able to funnel all that money that way. And then when it comes to regular businesses, regular people, small businesses, restaurants specifically, and we'll get to some of those details, uh, it becomes almost means tested. It's like, well, what do you have? What do you, you know, it has to be done in a particular way through the bank. So the administration is difficult. Um, it has to be, you know, uh, certain restrictions have to be put on it so it can be forgiven. So that puts, you know, that puts the bank in a situation where they're looking at their particular risk that they're taking. Um, so yeah, we have mechanisms to funnel unlimited money one way and we don't have mechanisms to funnel very much the other way. Um, so yeah, that's, it's a robbery. It's uh, it's a, but again, it's, it's a way to, it's it's if if you look at it in in this way, you sort of understand why it's systemic. You know, it, the system is built to be able to do this, and not do the other. And there's a and there's specific reasons for that. It's not an accident that this happened. Like you said, it's happened before. Yeah, it's it's far from accidental. But yeah, um, getting back to your original point, the PPP, we we um, we followed suit with um, pretty much everybody and we followed the guidelines um when the stay at home and uh everything got put into place when the, the shutdown order happened we like everybody uh sprung into action we we closed all of our establishments and 
uh, well, we, we, uh, for, for a brief period, I guess maybe five days, we, we attempted to do, um, you know, a different style of, of business than what we're known for. We attempted to do, you know, a strictly takeout, um, business without dining in that, that proved to be, um, we, we were 90 plus percent down during those four or five days. So we knew that wasn't an option. So commonly like, um, many other people and many other restaurants in our situation, we were, we were pointed in the direction of the PPP, which, um, the way that it was written was never an option. And I'm not, I don't claim to be an expert on it at all. I think if you, um, if you really wanted to look at it, you should read the CARES Act, first of all, then, um, there's really great resources out there. I'm more of a, a cliff notes kind of guy, but the, uh, um, the restaurant, the independent restaurant coalition is a great resource for, for a lot of people, uh, in our industry, but then even for a lot of, um, guests, consumers, anybody that, that wants to support their local neighborhood restaurant, they, they should check out, um, it's called saverestaurants.com, but the independent restaurant coalition, um, I know a few of the names that it was spearheaded by Tom Colicchio, Jose Andreas, and a few others. Um, yeah, there's, those guys are, are known for not only, um, being great restaurateurs and chefs, but they, they are, you know, humanitarians really, uh, both of those guys. And it's not surprising, as you said, a lot of people who are involved, um, with food, with cooking, with restaurateur, with sommelier, whatever it's, it's sort of like a, it's a service, you know, you're giving your, you know, it's, it's a real passionate thing. Cause I cook at home, um, and I cook for parties and I, and just doing that is very fulfilling. Um, so yeah, though there's a humanitarian aspect to what those guys do and, and we'll definitely link to that in the show notes. Um, so people can take a look at it and see a lot of the details, but so if you could, if, if you could summarize sort of what, what the drawbacks were, uh, for you, for your specific unique situation, as far as being able to arrive at a number that you could then take and, and use within the prescribed period of time within the parameters that were set. Um, what was it, what's, what specific items were too much of a risk to be able to, the way that it was set up to use those funds? I think you just hit on it. It's, it was the time uh, restriction. I think that was the biggest one. And the fact that, you know, the, the independent restaurant industry didn't have the luxury of, let's say, maybe the airline industry, where there were no restrictions whatsoever. It was just, we're going to dump piles and piles of money on you. And then, then you can just do with it however you want. Uh, we had to then, we had to prove uh, that we would retain, um, I believe it was 80% of our staff, and that we also had to exhaust the funds um, within an eight week period. So at the, at the time, I guess, let's just say it, we would have had to have spent every penny, I believe by like mid June in order for it to be quote forgivable. Um, there were a lot of problems with that right away. Um, I don't know if I can retain 80% of my staff when they're getting paid unemployment and actually doing fairly well. I mean, you're, you're looking at, uh, the, the additional $600 plus your regular unemployment benefits, 
people are going to be uh, fairly comfortable with that. I think I would be. Not only that, if I was to retain my staff, I would have had to have spent all of that money um, and then all of a sudden open the door for business um, without having the confidence of the public and, and knowing that I'm not going to be operating at 100%. I'm going to be operating maybe at best 50%. And a little known fact is before this whole um, pandemic hit, if you were a restaurant in thriving times, you would need at least a minimum of 80% capacity just to break even. That's pretty much uh, an average across the board with any, any dine-in restaurant. And so that's what I mean when, when we say, you know, these, that uh, an independent tiny little restaurant is not, it's not in it for the money. They, they have extremely small margins and, um, and this one little thing could, uh, could easily uh, put many people like me un under. We're going to go under if we um, if we don't get the resources that I think a lot of the um, independent restaurant coalition are fighting for. Right now, they're calling for a restaurant stabilization fund, which I think that's another code for a bailout. I mean, we're willing to bail out these other industries. How about bailing out the one that's actually I think taking the hit the hardest? What do yeah, you think? So yeah, so let me let me let me review a couple points and make sure I got them, and then let's talk about um, the next steps for this um, restaurant uh, sort of bail. Yeah, we call it a bailout. Fuck it. I mean, everybody's in the same situation. Um, yeah, I mean, it's very hard to say I'm going to take this money and 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 whatever it is, seventy percent of it, and I'm going to keep all my thirty six employees on on payroll, and I'm going to meet payroll. When they, if they're laid off, are making the extra 600 because of the situation. I mean, you and I have both worked. We've both been laid off. You know, we both have been in this situation. As you said, you would, do, you would probably do the same just for yourself. So you're already in that situation of having to convince, you know, three dozen people that they should just stay on for basically less money. <laughs> I guess, man. I don't know. I, I wouldn't wish unemployment on anybody. That's I've true. Never, I've never collected it. I, I didn't uh, know how. I had to learn as I went this time around. And of, yeah. and of course, you know, to date, I, I haven't received a penny. My wife hasn't received a penny. Yeah. Uh, we, we opted against the PPP, of course. We haven't received um, any of our housing uh, assistance that the state offers, just, you know, for our own private yeah. residents. Um, we certainly haven't received any of the, uh, the uh, every, every restaurant, Every business that I know of has a business interruption insurance that you pay for every month. And this would be one of those times where they should pay out. From what I understand, please somebody correct me if I'm wrong, the insurance companies have refused across the board to pay out a penny because COVID-19 uh, in their small print wasn't covered. So no, we haven't gotten any relief in any way. And um, unemployment is a full-time job just trying to deal and navigate with that. So I, I don't wish that upon anybody. Yeah, certainly. It's certainly not. I mean, no one's in a in a good situation here. Certainly not. And I and I agree with you. Um, you know, I've 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 been unemployed, and and you know, luckily I've had I've been in situations where I've been able to work my way through it. But yeah, it's 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 not great. Um, but the second part of it is uh, exactly what we've talked about this yesterday. If at a bare minimum 
you know, you need 80%, um, you, you retention. need 80% retention. So while, while your doors are open, you need 80% of the, of the restaurant full at all times just for break even. Now, luckily, uh, you know, you're very popular over there, but you know, you have a small place. And so, you know, where there's, how, how many are inside there? How many do you see? A couple dozen, dozen? I have, I have 700 square feet. 700 square feet. On our, so on our Levering Avenue and we, we cram eight tables in there. So, yeah. So now if you go down, so like you said, if you, if, if once everything's allowed to be back open, which of course is, so you're hypothetically the PPP money runs out. Um, you've, you've spent it. So you're not, and this is just hypothetical. So you're not uh, obligated to pay it back. So you're at least not in the hole, but then when you open back up and you can only see, you know, two tables or three tables inside, number one. And number two, you know, 60 to 70% of the people are, are probably not going to be keen on just rushing right back out and sitting inside with, with you know, a few other people. Um, you're sort of, you're dead in the water. Um, so I guess you had to think about all that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's correct all across the board. So having those, uh, those stipulations in place as the PPP was written, it, it was a non, a non uh, option for us. It, it was not at all viable. And, um, it, you know, we would have, we would have ended up putting ourselves much further in debt. Yeah. So um, what, uh, what type of, do you know any kind of specifics that are involved with um, sort of the, uh, the, the restaurant bailout sort of situation? Do you, uh, do you know where it stands? Have, has anybody, has any legislative person sort of spoken out in favor of it or supported adding it to what they're calling, I guess, phase four of the, uh, you know, of the support plan? I really don't. And I, like I said, I, I, there's, there's much more knowledgeable parties and much more eloquent speakers than, than I, I don't even want to be considered a spokesperson, but um, the, the thing that I know is that, you know, you had, it's it's a a flight or fight response right it, when this thing happened there are people who um immediately just went into action they just thought of anything that they could do to try and stay afloat and keep in mind we did that ourselves we yeah, you're, we you're actually up, still doing that i think kind of kind of sort of yeah i mean try i guess you did you did a little yeah. bit today yeah uh, yesterday as I, as I speak um our our place is open. My wife is um, selling our pre-paid orders for frozen baked goods that she prepared um, for Mother's Day, which we're recording this on Saturday, May 9th. Yeah. Mother's Day is tomorrow. So we thought we would just do, it's not uh, a lot of the part that, that, that hurts us in our industry is the, the labor. And so what we did was we did all of the, the preparation and then we, we made um, pre-packed frozen baked goods that, that came with instructions. So hopefully tomorrow morning you can put that in the oven and have a nice little baked treat, some home, homemade hand-rolled fresh croissants straight out of the oven for mom tomorrow morning. Nice. Um, so it's not business as usual, not at all. Yeah. And we even tried to do um, takeout only, but we're, we're a coffee shop. We're a restaurant. We, we definitely are known for um, for being a dine-in establishment when we changed that to takeout only 
uh, we found ourselves down 90%. And I'm sure without a doubt that we weren't alone, that many other restaurants were experiencing the same thing. So I know for a fact, a lot of, a lot of places just uh, pushed through, stayed open, kept the doors open, knowing that they're losing money every day, but they were trying to wait it out. Cause in the beginning, you know, lots of things were being tossed out there as like uh, as simple as well, you know, we'll just shut down for two weeks and then we'll, we'll, we'll open back up in two weeks. That was one of the things I remember hearing and thought that sounded reasonable, but you know, even for us, that meant we had to close down uh, three operations, three entire facilities. We had to throw away any perishable goods. So there's waste. There's an enormous amount of waste. I mean, it was thousands upon thousands of dollars worth of product that were immediately just garbage. Um, I don't believe many places would, would be able to cash in on the insurance for that either. Um, so there's another loss that every other restaurant in America had to take. Um, and then we had to basically lock up and, and know that we weren't going to open our doors for the foreseeable future. Um, there's plenty of places that, that stayed open, but I can only imagine what their, their books look like. They're, they're staying open basically to wait it out. They probably also had to lay off everybody. They had to bring anyone with any skin in the game into the restaurant to work uh full days which is i don't know how many countless hours a day i mean before the pandemic we were already putting in you know 12 to 14 hour days minimum uh so you're you're killing yourself and you're keeping the door open but you're doing it at a loss and you're and you're losing money every day uh some of the other things at that time that were proposed were gift cards for us i i couldn't I couldn't confidently uh, take someone's money knowing that I would not be able to make good on that in the future. So we didn't, I refused to sell any gift cards to our very, very generous and supportive clientele. And they were, there was anger, actually. People were angry that I wouldn't sell them a gift card. And I was actually, you know, trying to, uh, yeah. to do the right thing. Um, yeah, it's funny because you, you mentioned yesterday, you know, just having sort of, you know, you live in the neighborhood, you live here, you're with us, you're, you're a neighbor of ours. Um, and, you know, you see people who, you know, your customers around as you're walking the dog and their confusion about, uh, especially restaurants, but just small businesses in general, their confusion about how they operate and what their, what their margins are and what their supply chains like. Um, and their inventories like is, is really, it's a, a little microcosm of why, of why things are the way that they are. That, as you said, I mean, you could sell people what somebody said, I'd buy a couple loaves of bread every day. You know, that's not gonna, that's not how it works. Like I, I wish, you know, I'm sure you were like, I wish I could sell just bread out of here every day and that would be a thing but that's not a thing it doesn't work like that and you know <laughs> to your, there are no bakeries for, for example in wilmington i mean there there are no we used to have really really good bakeries but they do not make money in thriving times yeah i mean the when defonzo's uh left uh and and uh the black cat or whatever it was black over there lab. black lab that was a decent spot in the same place but they couldn't make it um, you know, uh, 
Defonzos came back in an Ellesmere, but they couldn't make it. They left. Um, Serpies is uh, that's about it, I think, for us. And when we first opened, we were not baking our own bread. We were bringing it in, yeah. and we couldn't find reliable and yeah. enough quality product. So we said we're going to do it ourselves, and that was actually the um, the first step in our expansion was because we wanted to bake our own bread. And you know that if you're, you're doing that, you, you can't do that alone. You have to then, you know, supplement that with some of the other things that we do. So we, we have a full food menu and we have a full coffee menu. And then we also needed to um, sell wholesale to other locations, which none of that was in the plan when we first opened our bakery. Yeah. But to your, to your credit, I mean, um, I, I think it's, I think it's it's very cool and admirable that like you're like I, I'm not going to sell you a, a gift certificate for fifty dollars or a hundred dollars when I, I don't I don't know whether I can come through on that like that's probably a tough decision to make actually yeah and then let's play it out Rob okay you you buy a fifty dollar gift card from me and let's say I'm still there I'm still there in um, September well then we've gotten this far. You and then, you know, a hundred other people who have this $50 gift card, they want to spend it in September. And therefore, you know, that money's already gone. But you're, you're then cashing in and many other people are cashing in. And if you look at, you know, that example for my little tiny place, that's an example that's happening across the board with every restaurant in America. People are going to then come to cash in these, these gift certificates and gift cards in the next four months. And no one's going to pay for two months. <laughs> and that puts the restaurant even further in the hole. So having a gift card is for, for a, a, a restaurant on our books, that's a liability. And not only that, it's, it's, um, if you don't pull through, I just robbed you of 50 bucks and I'm not going to do that. Yeah. So, I mean, where's, where do you, where do you, you and Gretchen stand now? I mean, I know you also had plans to open up in the new building that's at the end of uh, at Union Street at Pennsylvania Avenue, which is going up. Um, that was a planned thing, uh, but everything's closed now. I mean, what what's your what's your situation? Um, you know, wh- how much time do you have to make a decision, and and where are you at? Well, yeah, we had um, we had four weeks. We only had four weeks of really solid business in our new newest location, which was in Independence Mall. And the sales were good. Everything was actually on track. Uh, we would have actually, if things had kept going, we would have hit all of our projections and we would have been able to, to make that work. Um, we also had plans to do um, our fourth uh, business venture which would have been a lot more um, involved. It would have been for us, it would have been the biggest um, operation that we would have had. And we've been working on this um, night and day during business hours and during regular business operations. We've been working on this for the last year and a half. So all of the plans are there, the entire business plan, all of the uh, expenses that we've had to put together just to, to get that thing, which was, supposed to launch in um in the fall of this year those now have all been put on hold and your guess is as good as mine as if they'll be picked back up or not um i don't really 
know what to say. I don't have too much sympathy for the developers, but um, we would have we would have been happy to go in there and we would have done quite well in there. I don't know what their plan is, but our plan has been put on hold because we're fighting for our lives with our existing um, locations. And so with that being said, at the moment, they're all shut. They're all closed for business. And I don't know when slash if we will open the doors again. Um, right now, uh, you know, we've had zero income for the last six weeks, you know, apart from our little fundraisers, which by the way, all of the uh, proceeds from what we're just offering for, for Mother's Day, that's going to pay our staff. Um, our staff was shorted their last paycheck because our business, which had just invested heavily into a new operation, we couldn't even cover our last payroll. And I'm sure that my my tiny business was not alone in, in that as well. I'm sure uh, um, other uh, restaurant owners found themselves in a similar position. So uh, my wife and I are working and we're trying to at least give them what they are owed, which is their last paycheck. And um, beyond that, Rob, I don't, I don't know. I don't see a way um, of us being able to open our doors unless, uh, you know, Bill Gates or uh, Mike Bloomberg swoops in and starts throwing money at us. I, that's, uh, those, those two names are giving me the creeps. Um, you know, I, I hope that, well, well, two things, um, let's talk about sort of some of the, some of the things that you've seen just for the restaurant industry, because I think it's important for people to start to reckon with what this could look like when we, when, when we do slowly reopen and we are able to go out, because I think that the, the impact of that is going to be pretty serious on a lot of people's psyche and i hopefully we can we can use that to to lobby as hard as we possibly can for a real uh for a real plan to help people get their get back on their feet get their businesses back up and and regular people not capital markets not quantitative easing not capitalizing big banks not not ensuring that you know large uh, operations can continue, but regular people to places we go in our neighborhood to places other people go in their neighborhood. I'm hoping that this yeah, will and not shock the system. Shack. and not, not fucking Shack. Shake Shack or Ruth and Chris, not, and not the number of other ones that weren't named and shamed and guilted into returning their PPP loan. Yeah, I can I can tell you uh, I'm in I'm I'm talking to a, a Jacobin writer who wrote a little article about. Uh, Ruth, Chris, and and Steak Shack, and some of those places giving back their money that we'll talk a little bit about in this in detail. She's a sociologist, but I hope to have her on in a week or two because, yeah, I mean, people should immediately be mad about that. But what people are going to be even more upset about is in a month or two when they go back out and they realize seventy five percent of the places of the restaurants and places they go are are never open again. Yeah, I mean, you were saying yesterday you see numbers up to ninety, or excuse me, up to eighty percent. Yeah. Of I small think a lot of people places. might hear that, Rob, and think that that's like really extreme. In fact, I've had some casual <laughs> disagreements uh, with people in the industry who who said I'm ridiculous for even thinking that. But uh, don't take my word for it. I mean, the, the name Tom Colicchio, if you know that name, yeah, Craft, uh, Craft, Craft Sakes. God, he's a very successful restaurateur. 
he said, uh, when this is over, 80% of restaurants will never reopen their doors. So if, if somebody like that with immense amount of resources, and I'm not discounting what he does, he, he busts his ass, he works his ass off. If, if somebody in, in that uh, position with the resources that he has knows that he won't be able to reopen, my, my wife and I are in the same boat for sure. And I think, yeah, when, when the dust settles, what we see and what, what is left standing as far as small businesses in general, but as, as small, small independent uh, restaurants, as far as they go, I think we're going to see uh, maybe a handful still standing. Yeah, and I think it's important for people to reckon with this uh, because now is the time. You know, we're all kind of cooped up, and we don't have a lot of ways to uh, express what we need to express. But if if we don't start to um, reflect upon what just happened with the CARES Act, how the whole system is sort of rigged and set up to to do one thing and not the other, um, the world is going to be. You're not going to be happy with the way things look once we are able to start living again in whatever fashion we're able to, it's not going to be pleasant. Um, you know, it just sucks. Yeah. And I think it's also a really good time to highlight all of the things that were wrong uh, before. Cause, cause when we, when we say, Oh, well let's, let's just uh, get through this and we'll get back to quote normal. I don't think that what, what we were living in was normal. I don't think that, uh, you know, paying people, the Delaware state minimum wage should be considered normal. That that's exploitative. It's, uh, it's criminal. It's not a living wage. It's not something that can, that people can live off of. Not, not having any health benefits. That is not normal. <laughs> that is not extreme to think that we should be able to pay for healthcare for, um, for our, our citizens and for our neighbors and for, for, for me, for my employees, um, this industry, that's a, that's a rarity. Um, but I, I really tried hard to do it. I wasn't able to do it. Um, so when we say getting back to normal, well, let's, let's not get back to normal. Let's, let's actually highlight the failures that, um, that this actually pointed out. So right off the bat, there's two things. We got to raise the minimum wage. We got to offer people fucking health care. And we know we've got the money to do it, Rob. Yeah, I mean, if you got the money to capitalize, uh, to capitalize the uh, financial markets at the snap of a finger to the tune of four and a half trillion dollars, nobody asked. No, not nobody asked how they were going to pay for it. Not once. Was, wasn't no. even a, wasn't even a question. And it always goes to uh, the least in need. Yeah, too big to fail. It's a, it's a, when you guys do go to the uh, saverestaurants.com, uh, you'll see there's a, a nice little write-up, and it's titled Too Small to Fail. And that's our industry. We're too small to fail, and there's too many. I think what I read is there's, what, uh, 11 million small independent restaurants across the country that employ – I might have reversed my numbers there. I don't know. Let's say uh, 5 million. But they employ, I think uh, – Estimates over uh, 11 million people. And that's just in the independent restaurant sector. I don't think it includes big chains. Well, Alex, thanks for jumping on again with me. I appreciate it. Uh, My pleasure, I hope, man. I hope I didn't rile you up two straight days. 
No, I kind of feel like I needed to be a little bit more animated. <laughs> uh, well, I'm glad. I'm glad. I'll yeah. come back next time and I'll just start, you know, cursing up a storm. Well, you know, I told you yesterday, definitely cursing is, is definitely allowed on this. We know that. But you can, know what? If, if, uh, if they strip the title away from Liverpool, I'm going to come back on and I'll be even more. Fired up. Buddy, I have to tell you a funny story. I, I, uh, I was reading a, an, an article in uh, you know, some, some newspaper online, right? And I noticed it that when you, when you, when you use the link, it was about coronavirus and, and, and just people. And so there, it was a picture of people in line on a city street standing within like chalk circles. So they stayed, you know, eight feet apart <clears throat> down this thing. And it's about you know, 10 people you see go down to the corner. Well, the first person in the line happened to be wearing a, a Liverpool kit and just jeans and boots or whatever. And the headline, so when, I, when you click on it, when you put it on Twitter, the headline just says, you know, uh, you know, such and such worries about coronavirus fear spread. And so I retweeted it and I just said, I think, to, I think the bloke in the Liverpool kit's worried about a lot more than the, than the coronavirus. And then this morning I got up and I had a response from Jerry Harbreak and it just said, stop this now. <laughs> he was like, shut it. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's how I feel. I don't even want to entertain that. Yeah, I mean, the Bundesliga is going to try. Uh, somebody's got to be first. Um, so we'll see. Those German matches are going to be like World Cup matches. I mean, people are going to be hanging on every minute of them. Uh, so that should be interesting. Uh, but yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll definitely keep in touch with you and um, make sure that what's going on, we can spread the word a little bit. Um, I think what you said is, is exactly right. Um, Normal wasn't good enough. That what what we're what we're going through is exposing just the 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 cracks and the and the and the deficiencies and the greed and the systematic obstructions to living a decent life and just having a decent wage, having health care, and being able to run a business um, in in a, in a nice way for the neighborhood. Um, you know, all of those things are being exposed, and I hope that, like as you said that we can start asking for more and saying, you know, there was never a normal, no one was normal. That wasn't, that was, that's what got us here. That's why we're not able to, that's why we're not able to help everybody through this because there is no normal and that's got to change. You're damn right. And you know what? We, we don't ask, we demand. Yes. Because, you know, wh whether uh, my little nano restaurant group makes it or not, uh, my wife and I are still tax-paying citizens. We're still, well, we'll have to re-enter the workforce if we don't make it. Uh, we have to demand more because what we've been living through isn't good enough. And anybody that you ask in an, an industrialized nation where they actually pay for their citizens' health care, this system is laughable to them. And it, it should be absurdly laughable to us but we've been engrossed in it for so long that people can't even see the forest through the trees, man. Yeah. There's a, there's a concept. Um, Adam Curtis, the documentarian made a, made a documentary called hypernormalization. And it's sort of that it's like when you're sitting in it, you feel like it's normal. And so you don't even really almost question. So anything can happen. And you're just like, Oh, this, I guess this is what just what happens. And it's unacceptable. Yeah. Um, you know, I read the thing in the, in the times yesterday, you know, that uh, just chain food service workers, so McDonald's, Wendy's, whatever, uh, in Denmark, uh, they make uh, the equivalent of $22 an hour. They have full health care through the government, 
and they get to pay time off, sick leave. They get a year of paternal or maternal. And because they're, because they're human beings serving you food and they deserve just the same as everybody else. But we can't see that. We, we can't, you know, it doesn't, we're too far in, in it. And I hope that this situation shakes us from that. Correct. Yeah. It's the same corporation. They uh, have the same problems that we have in this country, but the way McDonald's corporation operates in Denmark actually cares for their employees. Yet they don't do that here. Well, they're made to, as you said, they're, they, the, the people, the, the people of Denmark. Uh, yeah, there you go. The, the people of Denmark demanded that everybody be treated in a way that's, uh, that gives them a decent life and that everybody, because they're there, deserves that. And so McDonald's has no choice. If you want to sell hamburgers in this country, you're not going to sell it with exploitive labor. You're not going to, you're not going to uh, you know, make people live in poverty when they work for you eight hours a day because it's unacceptable to the people of Denmark. That's the difference. And I hope people start uh, waking up to that. And that's the difference. You have to demand it. Well, thanks a lot, man. I really appreciate it. We're at, uh, we're at patreon.com slash the Highlands Bunker. We're at Highlands Bunker on Twitter. Um, you know what to do. Give us a patronage if you can. If you cannot, don't. Um, we know, the, we know the, the economic situation right now is fraught, and, uh, and people are in, in, a, in, a, in a certain kind of way, and it's all kind of unique, too. Everybody's sort of suffering in a little bit of a different way. So um, I just hope everybody – Hangs tight. I hope everybody uses this to gain energy for political organizing and activism. And I hope we can create a new normal um, so we can all live uh, a little bit better and not have to worry about things that we needn't have to worry about. Alex, thanks again, man. Thanks, Rob. Thanks for having me. I'll talk to you later, man. Left his best, everybody. Peace.